God, it's good to sing today. Therefore, we have hope. And we will not fear, for our God is near. God, be near to us today. You already have in song. We ask that you would be near to us today in and through your word, O God. Comfort, convict, encourage. Set our hearts in right alignment with you. Set our minds in right alignment with you today as we get into your word together. In the name of Christ, the people of God, together said, amen. Well, listen, today we're talking about Christology. We're talking about Christology. We're talking about who Jesus is and what he's done because that's the place that we find ourselves in Paul's letter to the Colossian church. So kind of here's the overview of where we're headed today. We're going to talk about two things. We're going to talk about the person of Christ, that is who he is, and then the work of Christ specifically as it relates to creation. Now next week we're going to talk about the person of Christ and the work of Christ specifically as it relates to the church. But today we're talking about the person of Christ, who he is, and what he's done in terms of creation. And that uh, Christology, who Jesus is and what he's done, Paul begins to unpack that in verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1. But he kind of ramps in with an introduction that we're going to read together right now. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of Colossians chapter 1. And we'll begin there in verse 3. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. If you don't have your Bibles, there's one in the seat back in front of you. Scripture, as always, is up here on the screen. Just make sure you get the text in front of you. I would encourage you as well, just going forward in our series, especially as we march through a book of the Bible together, bring your Bibles, take notes, jot things down. It always helps me to kind of get the Word of God in my head and in my heart as I write things down in my Bible and kind of make notes and things. So encourage you to do that. If you're using one of our Bibles, please don't do that, okay? Unless you sit in the same seat every week and you just want to save your Bible in front of you there, then feel free to write in it. All right, here we go. Colossians chapter 1, we're starting in verse 3. Paul's introduced himself and he says, now to the Colossian church, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. Here's what Paul is saying. Remember we talked about this last week. Here's kind of the, you know, we're going to just kind of summarize our message from last week. I told Epaphras in Ephesus, he went back and told you in Colossae. And now someone, probably Epaphras, has told Paul and Timothy about all the things that are happening in the Colossian church. And so Paul is saying, and so now that I've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, I'm writing to you this letter. And Paul starts with a prayer for the Colossian church. Side note, Kevin said a minute ago, we covet your prayers as pastors. He is absolutely right. We need them so badly. We are poor, wretched, pitiful, blind, and naked people, spiritually anyway, okay, just spiritually. All right, so 
So we need your prayers. And so some of you might be wondering, how, how would I pray for a pastor? What, what's a good kind of template to use? And what things might I be able to pray for for my pastor? Let's look at Paul's prayer for the Colossian church. And we can even kind of use this as a model. But as we do that, I want you to look for this theme that's repeated in Paul's prayer for the Colossian church. It starts in verse 9. And the theme is knowledge. Knowledge. Paul talks about knowledge twice. He mentions wisdom once, and he mentions understanding once. He's already mentioned the word truth twice. Because remember, one of the groups of false teachers in the Colossian church was a group called the Gnostics. And they kind of, uh, kind of argued and, and believed that we needed to kind of reach this higher knowledge. Yes, yes, Jesus, but that there was this kind of next plane of knowledge that you could reach. And once you kind of reach that higher plane of knowledge, then you were really saved. Then you had whatever you needed for life and godliness. You needed to reach that higher level of knowledge. And so Paul, even in his prayer, is already instructing the Colossian church, look, I am praying this knowledge for you. I'm praying this wisdom for you. I'm praying this understanding for you. You already have what you need. Look at his prayer for the Colossian church in verse 9. He says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. And what does he pray for them? Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. We said that those false teachers there in Colossae were called the Gnostics. And that word knowledge in the original Greek, which is what your Bible is written in, is the word epignosko. Same root word, gnosis. Gnostics and epignosko. Knowledge. Paul is saying that you need knowledge, you need wisdom, you need understanding in order to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and fully pleasing to him. Why does Paul pray the Colossian church would have knowledge and wisdom and understanding? Because Paul knows this, that Jesus minus knowledge equals a spiritual train wreck. That's what Paul knows. That Jesus minus knowledge equals a spiritual train wreck. So he prays for the Colossian church. He says, you need knowledge. You need wisdom. You need understanding. This truism is, is still true today. I have people come into my office all of the time. I mean, all of the time. All of the time. And we start talking about the nature of God and who God is and how he reacts to things and, and what he thinks about the world and what he loves and what he hates. And I'll literally have people say, well, you know what, Luke, the God I believe in. What? What about the God that's real? We need, we need knowledge of God because he has revealed himself. He's done that on purpose. Or we come in, I people come in all the time and they have expectations of God, of how he might react to them and how he, how he feels about them. I expect that God would be angry with me or I expect that if I do the right things, God will reward me in this life. 
And then what happens is when those expectations aren't met, they just train wreck spiritually. You've probably seen this in your own life. People, you know, they get married and they engage in business and they have children and they have these expectations of how God is going to work in their life and they're misguided expectations. They're based in something that's not fact, that's not knowledge, that's not wisdom and understanding. Paul says you have to have that stuff because if you have Jesus and you don't have knowledge, when those expectations aren't met, your life is going to train wreck spiritually you're going to abdicate the faith and give it up so he says i pray that you have knowledge twice wisdom once and understanding once but but there's there's another equation that's also true here and it's and it's this knowledge minus jesus equals no train at all (laughs) if jesus minus knowledge will spiritually train wreck your life then knowledge you know everything but if you have no jesus there's no train at all we got to have both of these together, and it's knowledge not plus Jesus, but knowledge, listen close, of Jesus equals spiritual vitality. Knowledge of Jesus equals spiritual vitality. This is what Paul is praying now for the church at Colossae, that they would have a knowledge of Jesus and what that would uh, what that would mean for them, what, that would, what they would reap in their lives because of that knowledge of Jesus is that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul continues his prayer for the Colossian church, verse 11. He says, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is Paul's prayer for the Colossian church. You're looking for something to pray for me. You're looking for something to pray for Kevin, for our other pastors on staff, for a small group that you're in, for friends and family. Pray that. Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14. So now that Paul has prayed for the church, here's what he's going to do. And here's where we're going to spend the majority of our time today. He's going to say that knowledge that you need, that understanding that you need, that wisdom that you need is a deep, transformative, cogent Christology. And he begins to impart that knowledge of Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's done. And he starts in verse 15. If you're underliner, if you're an underliner in your Bible, underline this verse. Here's what Paul says in verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We could do a year of sermons. And we could call that year of sermons Colossians 1, verse 15. (laughs) There is a lot of theology. There is a lot of truth packed into just those few words. And we're just going to try to scratch the surface a little bit today. The first reaction that I have when I read Colossians 1, verse 15. He is the image, Jesus now, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. My first reaction is just to take a step back and go, wow. Wow. Let's just let it sit there for a minute. (laughs) He is the image 
of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So in order to understand Paul's Christology, who Jesus is, we first have to understand his theology, that is, who is God? So let's start here. We're going to start with three verses or three sections of Scripture that talk a little bit about, listen close now, the unapproachability of God. So listen to what the doxology in Romans says. Paul writes this in another letter. He says, oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. No man or woman, by the way, can fathom his ways. No one has known the mind of the Lord. No one has offered him counsel. Who has given to God that God should repay him? For from him and to him and through him are all things. God is unapproachable. God is invisible. He is majestic. He is different than us. He is high and exalted and lifted up. So much so that when Moses and God are having a conversation in Exodus chapter 33, Moses says, please show me your glory to God. And God said, I will make my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, God said, listen close, you cannot see my face. For man cannot see my face and live. If we came face to face with the fully unveiled glory of God, we would come apart on the inside. That's why Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, says, Woe is me, I am coming undone. Because he got just a tiny little glimpse, a little picture of the character and nature of God. God is totally and completely unapproachable. 1 Timothy 6, verse 16, Paul writes this, he says, God alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable, there it is, light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Here's what Paul is saying in Romans and in Timothy. Here's what Exodus 33 is saying. Saying this, no one's ever seen God face to face. God is unapproachable, he's unfathomable, he is far beyond what we could even conceive. We ask ourselves, why is that? Because God is God. Like, I'm not, I'm not sure how to say it other than that, but, but God is God. No matter what faith background you come from, no matter what kind of you know, theological kind of bent you have, our concept of God, if it's God, and not like Superman, but if it's God, then it leaves no room for us to approach him. It leaves no room for us to relate to him. We might be able to appease him. We might be able to observe him, but we cannot know God. Why? Because God is God. That's, that's the Christian view of, of who God is, and that's the permeating view of, of who God is in just about every faith system. He's totally unapproachable. He's high and exalted and lifted up. He cannot be known. He cannot be experienced face to face. But, but, now listen close. Biblical Christology says that that God who lives in unapproachable light became flesh. 
Now, it's too great of a mystery for us to actually describe, but the Bible starts to give us pictures of what it means that that majestic God became a human being, became flesh. And here's one in Colossians 1 verse 15. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. If if you're jotting down notes, jot that word down, image, or underline it in your Bible, image. In the original Greek, the word is akon. It's transliterated. It's E-I-K-O-N, akon. It's where we get our word icon from. But in Greek philosophy and in the kind of first century Palestinian understanding, first century Hebrew and Greek understanding of that word icon, or in the original language, akon, the image has a share in the reality that it reveals, and it may even be said to Uh, embody that reality or even be that reality so an acon in 2000 years ago again in greek philosophy was not considered distinct from what it represented like a reproduction it was part and parcel the thing itself so 2000 years ago a roman soldier wrote a letter back to his family he was at war and he had one of his buddies in the army paint a picture of him and he wrote a letter to his family and he says see here i enclose of myself an acon and i am present with you it's not just a represent- representation of him it's the very embodiment of him he is now present with his family this roman soldier said and that's what the um, that's what the understanding of that word would have been so Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 15 he says Jesus is not a reproduction of God he's not an emanation of God he is the very essence and presence of God this happens all throughout scripture John 1 uh, verse 14 or John 1 1 says this in the beginning was the word And the word was God, the word was with God, and the word was God. He, that's Jesus, was in the beginning with God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The wisdom of God became flesh in Christ and dwelt among us. He is the image of God. Hebrews 1, chapter 3 says, or Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says this. He, that's Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature that word imprints like a stamp like a signet ring that a king puts on a letter he says that's jesus he is the exact imprint of the nature of god now i wanted to illustrate this this week so becky and i uh looked really hard on amazon for one of those do you remember those things they used to have at the mall with all the pins in them and you could put your face on them like that do you remember those things? Is everybody, some, like three people nodding. Great. Okay. So, I, I, so Amazon did not ship this thing in time. So now I'm going to have to explain it to you. So I, next week we're all going to sign a letter uh, to Amazon and say we're angry for not shipping this thing. So here's, here's what the thing looks like. It's about yay big and there's pins all over it. Teeny tiny little pins. They're not sharp. And you can place your hand through that thing and it, and it kind of makes an impression of your hand. 
or you can place your elbow through it, or you can place your thumb through it like that, and it makes an impression of it. So I used to do this when I was a kid. I was like six, seven years old. I would take and put my face through the thing, and it would make an impression of my face, and then I would stick my tongue out, and it would make an impression of my face sticking out my tongue. And I didn't think, Keith, that that's not terribly sanitary, but whatever, because you know a lot of other people in the mall would have been shoving their hands through that thing. What do you do? You're six years old. I survived. All right. So, so, so when, when Paul says that Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God, Paul might as well have said, he's like one of those things at the mall. <laughs> he is the exact imprint of God. It says he is the radiance of the glory of God. Just like the rays of the sun, Paul says, or the, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is distinct or the rays are distinct from the sun, but when those rays hit you and you experience heat and light, you're not just experiencing the effects of the sun, you're experiencing the sun itself. And the rays of the sun cannot be separated from the sun, and there is no sun without rays, and there, is no ray, there are no rays without the sun. They're distinct from one another, and yet they're one and the same. So when, Paul, when the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, he is distinct from the Father, but they are yet one and the same. He is the image of God, of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. If you're jotting down notes, jot this down. Here's Paul's first kind of core foundational truth when he says he is the image of the invisible God, is that Jesus is the word, the radiance, the exact imprint, and image of God. Jesus is the word, radiance, exact imprint, and image of God. Let's talk really quickly about some kind of false teachings that exist even today and existed 2,000 years ago that stand contrary to biblical Christology, in other words, who Jesus is. There are some that would say Jesus is kind of a lesser God. There, would some, there are some that say, well, Jesus is a human being and eventually he became like God or he became a God just as you can become a God and eventually get your own planet one day. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not Jesus. That's not who Jesus is. Let's firmly locate Jesus as the burning sun at the center of our universe and watch all those other planets fall into place. And here's the first tenet that we need to stand on is that Jesus is the word, radiance, exact imprint, and image of God. What does this mean for you and me? The first thing it means is this. In Jesus, God is revealed. In Jesus, God is revealed. God's character, God's expectations of us, what he loves, what he hates, God's worldview, what makes him mad, what makes him cry, what makes him throw a party in heaven is all revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. This God that once was invisible, this God that was unapproachable has now revealed himself. This God that was hidden from our eyes and yes is still hidden from our eyes in part, still too great to fathom, has revealed himself completely in Jesus. Number two, in Jesus... Because he's the image of the invisible God, God is personal. God is personal. 
Now get this, because this has implications. I talk to people all the time, and they describe their faith this way. They say, you know what? Well, I kind of grew up with it. And then when I got to high school, I had some questions about it. And then when I got to college, I totally abandoned it. And then a couple years after college, I got married, and my wife and I returned to it. And now we're raising our children in it, and we're really excited about it because we find a church that, li- that we like that talks a lot about it. A lot of it's there. In Jesus, God is a, is a him, personal. I grew up with him. And in high school, I made some bad choices that, that didn't make him happy. And in college, I had some questions about him. And then after college, I abandoned him. And then when, when my wife and I got married, I, I came back to him. And now we're raising our children to know him. And I get together with other people on Sunday who also want to know him too. Because in Jesus, God is, is personal. You can have a personal relationship with God now because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Number three, in Jesus, God is knowable. God is knowable. We talked about this just a few minutes ago, that there are uh, faith systems that say that God is to be appeased. God is to be observed. Christianity would say God is to be known personally in and through the person of Jesus Christ. So here's the deal. If you want to know God, look at Jesus. If you want to know God, read about Jesus. If you want to know God, Paul says, understand and develop knowledge of Jesus, the image of the invisible God. The second thing that Paul tells us in verse 15 to help flesh out this Christology, who Jesus is, is that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. If you're jotting down notes, underline that word in your, in, your, in your text, underline that word in your scripture, or jot that word down, firstborn. Again, original language, we're going to do a lot of Greek this morning, it's prototokos. It, 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 it not just refers to, uh, in, in time, chronology, Jesus was the first one born, because that's a little wacky, Jesus wasn't the first one born. I mean, that's, just, that's, that's not what Paul is saying here. What he's saying here is that Jesus is like the eldest son. He's the heir to all of the Father's things. He's the heir to all that the Father has. He's the firstborn in terms of primacy when it comes to creation. He is the heir, the firstborn, the prototokos of all things. Verse 16, why is he that? Because by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 16 and 17, Paul continues to unpack this Christology that Jesus is the image of the invisible God now. He's the firstborn of all creation. And he talks about Christ's agency and his role in creation. The first thing I want you to see in verse 16 and 17 is that Paul repeats that phrase, all things, three times. We talked about this before, that when the Bible repeats something, it's probably really, really important. So Paul repeats that phrase three times. He says, all things were created by him and through him and for him. We'll get to those prepositions in a minute. But right now, let's talk about all things. 
Let's just kind of get a picture, if we can, because the universe is beyond our ability to comprehend. The universe is beyond our ability to fathom. But let's just start and see if we can get a little bit of a picture as to what all things means. The moon is 211,000 miles away from us, even now. You could walk there in 27 years if you could cover 24 miles every day. And you would need probably something to stand on as well, okay? So 211,000 miles away from us. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. So if we could travel at the speed of light, we could reach the moon in 1.5 seconds. That's the speed of light. Venus, we could get to in two minutes. That's 26 million miles away. Mars in four minutes and 21 seconds, 34 million miles away. Mercury is 50 million miles away. It would take us four and a half minutes, but Jupiter gets hard, 35 minutes. Might have to stop for a Snickers bar. 367 million miles away. Saturn, 790 million miles away. And at the speed of light, it would take us an hour and 11 seconds to get to Saturn. Uranus is a billion miles away. Neptune is three billion miles away. If you bore a hole in the sun, you could fit 1.2 million Earths in there. And you'd still have room for 4.3 million moons. The sun's 93 million miles away from us, and its diameter is 385,000 miles. The nearest star to us right now is 20 billion miles away, and it's five times larger than the sun. The north star that you can see in the night sky is 400 billion miles away. The brightest star, the brightest star, listen, in the night sky is 51 trillion, 165 billion, 252 million, 300,000 miles away from Earth. The largest known star is Canis Majoris. It's 3,600 times larger than the sun, and it's yet so far away that you cannot see it with the naked eye. You can't see it in the night sky, and it's 3,600 3, times larger than the sun. At 1,000 miles an hour, if you were traveling 1,000 miles an hour, it would take you 7 million years to get there. At the speed of light, it would take you 3,900 years to get to Canis Majoris. And check this out. If you could travel there, you'd still be on the porch. Because scientists estimate that there are billions, hundreds of billions of galaxies beyond even the one that we sit in right now. All things. If the moon were a fraction of the distance closer to earth, if the oceans were a bit deeper, or if the earth was tilted at a slightly different angle, we'd be swallowed up by tides, burned up by the sun, frozen by polar ice caps, or flung off into space like an Olympic athlete flings a hammer. There are over 800,000 species of insects on the planet. There are over a billion of some of them. If you don't believe me, come to my house, count the mosquitoes. All things. And, and not just all things. Listen, watch these prepositions that Paul uses when it comes to Christ's agency in creation. It says that by him and through him and for him 
all things were created. It should be up here on the screen. It's highlighted by, through, and for. Again, we're doing a lot of Greek this morning. That word by is the Greek word en. That word through is the Greek word dia. And that word for is the Greek word ace. You don't need to know that. Here's what you need to know. That word by indicates vision or creativity. So when it says all of those things were created by him, it says that Christ envisioned them. The blueprint did not exist before Christ saw it and created it and envisioned it. That word through means agency. It's dia. It means he was the active one, the active agent in creation. This, this is Jesus now. And for him, I love that. It means all things have purpose or direction in him and to him. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying now in Jesus... All things find their purpose. In Jesus, all things find their purpose. Now, this is contrary to what a lot of folks would tell you out there. An atheist uh, philosopher, a guy named Stephen Jay Gould, writes this. He says, we exist because one odd group of fish had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. Because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age, because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. Wow. Interesting. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that Jesus created all things, and all things were created by him and through him and for him. And in him, all things find their purpose. Here's the picture that Paul is using. Here's the metaphor. Like an artist that envisions a painting and then picks up a canvas and a brush and, and constructs that painting or constructs that that sculpture, or like an author that writes words down on a page, and then when you and I read the book or look at the painting or experience the culture, we go, wow, that's, that person's good. That is creation. All things were created by him. He envisioned them. Then he constructed them, and then he stepped back and went, look at it, so you can see how great an artist I am. That is Jesus, Paul says. He goes on. He says, Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So not only do they find their purpose in Jesus, but in Jesus all things are sustained. In Jesus, the universe itself is held together. Listen, physicists tell us that at the center of atoms, at the center of atoms now, the smallest thing we know. There are a bunch of protons and neutrons, and there is vast space between protons and neutrons. We just talked about planets, but listen close now. The space between protons and neutrons is, relatively speaking, similar to the space between planets. Can you imagine that? The smallest things known to man. And you know what? People have been trying to figure out how they stick together for a really long time, and everybody's got a theory. At least lots of, lots of people have got a theory. Actual scientists have better theories than I do as to why that thing sticks together, by the way. But you know what? Nobody can agree as to why those protons and neutrons stick together. They look at them and go, relatively speaking, it's like as far as the earth is to the sun, and yet they stick together. You want to know why they stick together? Because in him, all things hold together. Because by him and through him 
and for him all things were created. Ultimately, the sustainer of the universe down to the most infinitesimally small elements is Christ. As one commentator says, he keeps the cosmos from becoming a chaos. I'm going to read this passage to you one more time. And then we're going to respond in worship. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That God, that Jesus, that created all things for himself, that envisioned them and then constructed them, and they all point to him and find their purpose in him. The one who embodies the invisible God, the firstborn in terms of rank of all creation, listen close now, became flesh, and not just became flesh, as we're going to sing now, became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. I know of no better way to respond than just to worship that Jesus this morning in song. Pray with me. God, we declare and affirm together that you, Jesus, are the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by you all things were created, whether dominions or authorities or rulers or powers, things invisible and visible, the heavens and the earth. They were created through you and for you, and in you all things hold together. Jesus, that we would see you as the burning sun in the center of our universe that we would see you as the stake in the ground that holds all things together. That when we sing simple children's songs like he's got the whole world in his hands, that we would picture you, oh Jesus, sustaining and upholding all things. We respond in worship now in the name of Christ, God's people said, amen. As the band comes up and the worship team come up to lead us in one final song, let's stand together and sing.